Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Strange World, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. Disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney Plus, so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and as we head into a short break in the regularly scheduled pod, we are back with another study group episode, marking the end of an era in the Walt Disney Animation Studios catalogue. That means there's no required viewing this week, there's no homework, no assignments. If you've just turned up with your backpack, with a sandwich in it, and no notepad, do not worry. We've got you on this episode. Instead, we'll be looking back over the 11 films we covered in the Renaissance era. It has been a big old chunky era, this one. 11 films, not even including the bonus episodes that we've done. And that includes The Little Mermaid, The Rescuers Down Under... Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, The Lion King, Pocahontas, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Hercules, Mulan, Tarzan, and Fantasia 2000. And we're going to be discussing our favourite sequences, songs and characters, we'll be updating our personal rankings as well as ranking those 11 films that we've just mentioned, and we'll be setting the stage for the studio's next era, and indeed our next era, including the small matter of what it's going to be called. So, as ever, I'm not alone in this, and joining me to discuss all of the above over the next hour or so is our resident lecturer, Dr. Sam Summers. Hey, Sam. Hello. Hi, Ben. How long have you spent since we recorded our Fantasia 2000 episode? Not that long ago. We're hopping on pretty quickly after doing our previous episode. But how much of the intervening time have you spent noodling over what we're going to call the next era? Quite a bit. I mean, we've had multiple conversations about it. Mm -hmm. I've done some reading. I've read up on some academics who've tried to name this period or otherwise written about periodization obviously lots of of kind of fan groups on the internet have have got their own ideas about it as well yeah so we actually don't know full disclosure like (laughs) we we truly haven't decided we we are going to decide this live on air so that's that's a big part of what i've been doing since we last recorded the (laughs) other thing obviously is the legend of zelda tears of the kingdom which is most of what i do with my life and as we record this i am perched on the precipice of the final boss literally yeah so we need to make this quick ben (laughs) because is ganon back is it a ganonissance as well as a disney renaissance (laughs) ganon is his name when he's like a demon pig Mm. and when he's a a human man he's ganondorf so in breath of the wild it was ganon but in this one he's ganondorf I prefer him where he's Ganondorf. He's a big old hunky dude, a big old hunky grey man with a big old sword. 
It's going to slice you, but not if I slice him first. Ooh, well, every single minute that we're doing this is a minute which you are not slicing and dicing Ganondorf. I would feel bad about that, but I'm looking forward to this study group chat. It's been ages since we've done one of these. Uh, probably over a year since our last study group, because as we said, this has been a big old era, a long era with some sizable breaks for significant life changes, plus a bunch of bonuses. We've been busy, we've been doing our thing, and that's not going to stop anytime soon. As we said, this is hopefully going to be a pretty short break in the regular pod, but we have a busy summer coming up. Obviously, because you're playing Zelda all day every day, Sam. Uh, But also, I mean, things are busy for you work-wise. You've got big work stuff coming up, but we have big pod stuff coming up too. So as we mentioned in our Fantasia 2000 episode... We will once again be back at the London Podcast Festival. I am so excited to go back to the London Podcast Festival. We had an incredible time last year doing Who Framed Roger Rabbit in front of a live audience. Sam, that is just one of my favourite things that we've done since we started the pod. I don't know about you. Yeah, yeah, it's great to see everybody in person. It's a break from just talking to you on a screen in the same way that getting back to uni in person was was great after a long stretch of just talking to everybody on Zoom. It is it's good to be in the room with people. It's it's the best way to experience my craft, to be honest, guys. <laughs> and speaking of Sam's craft, what we're doing this year at the podcast festival tickets are either on sale right now or imminently uh, just to let you know we are going to be on stage at king's place in london on saturday the 9th of september at 11 30 in the morning yes it's a morning slot but we would love to see you there come down and see us on saturday the 9th of september 11 30 a.m because what you're gonna see is something that people normally pay £9,000 a year for, which is to see Sam and me talk about Sam's specialist subject. Now, obviously, with Who Framed Roger Rabbit, we picked a film that wasn't a Walt Disney Animation Studios film. It wasn't part of the main canon that we are looking at, but it was very much tied in to the Walt Disney Animation Studios legacy. It was a part of this story that we've been telling over a couple of years now about all these changes in the studio. And so we thought we should do a similar thing here. We're going to step a little bit outside of canon. We're going to tell something that feels like it's part of the story of the podcast that we've been telling across all these episodes. What could that be? And then Sam flung open the door of his swampside bog to the sounds of All Star by Smash Mouth and declared... (laughs) We should do Shrek. Yes, our live show this year at the London Podcast Festival 2023 on Saturday the 9th of September at 11.30am is gonna be Shrek. We are finally doing Shrek. We're back in the Katzenberg-verse. We're doing Sam's specialist subject. He quite literally wrote the academic book. Sam, please drop the name. Oh, balls, eh? (laughs) (laughs) It's DreamWorks Animation, colon... Intertextuality and aesthetics in Shrek and beyond. Ah, incredible. Never asked me to do that again. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, so Sam quite literally wrote the book, the academic book on Shrek and the DreamWorks canon. Normally you would pay £9,000 a year to be on Sam's course (laughs) at Middlesex University, but instead, for like a tenner, 
a tenner a ticket, you can come down and see us at the London Podcast Festival doing a live episode on Trek. You can scroll back through your pod feeds and find our live episode for Who Framed Roger Rabbit here. How much fun we had, how much fun the audience had. It was a wonderful, wonderful room to be in, and you can be in that room this year if you head to kingsplace.co.uk. Have a look, find our show, or go on our Twitter, go on our social media, unless your rate limit has been exceeded. <laughs> maybe that joke yeah, if... doesn't mean anything now. It depends when you're listening to this. And maybe Twitter doesn't exist. Maybe Twitter doesn't exist. Who knows? But one thing is for sure, we exist, Shrek exists, this show will exist. Head online, look on our social media, you'll be able to find links to buy a ticket to that. So incredibly excited to, in early September, be heading back to the London Podcast Festival. But that's not the only thing we've got going on. So as you may know, this year is 100 years of Disney. The studio is celebrating 100 years of making stuff. It's not the 100th anniversary of Snow White. That is a little while off yet, but this is 100 years since the Walt Disney Company began, since Walt started making his shorts, started making stuff under his own name. And so the studio is doing big celebrations all year, uh, including, as we've discussed many times on the show, the upcoming movie Wish is going to be tied in very much to Disney's 100th year. And at the BFI, at the British Film Institute, they are about to have a big Disney season. It's called Making Magic 100 Years of Disney, And there are all sorts of classic Disney films heading back to the big screen at the BFI with all kinds of events as well. And one of those events is titled Once Upon a Time, A Disney Day. It's on the 22nd of July. So really, if you're listening to this just after it comes out, just a couple of weeks away, on the 22nd of July at the BFI, there's going to be a whole afternoon of talks about all things, the history of Disney, the technological advances of Disney, the way that representation in the studio has changed over that time, and Sam and I are going to be part of that. We are going to be there at Once Upon a Time, a Disney day, giving a talk about the history of the studio, and I am super excited for that as well. Sam, talk at the BFI, what is happening? Yeah, talking at the BFI, the last person I saw talk at the BFI was Guillermo del Toro, talking about animation and stop motion and his Pinocchio movie and all sorts of other great stuff, and that is pretty swanky company to be in, in terms of people who've given talks in one of those screens. Yeah, I've only ever seen films at the BFI, I've been as a punter many times, I've never been to talk there myself, and at the moment, as we record this... Tickets for that have actually sold out, but I believe more tickets are going to be going on sale pretty imminently. So uh, again, keep an eye on our social media because we'll be posting ticket links as and when that happens. Uh, So yeah, that is Once Upon a Time, a Disney day at the BFI with all sorts of other amazing talks happening throughout the afternoon. We would love you to be there for that. If you're heading along, do send us a message, do let us know, and we would love to see you down there. And a little bit later in this episode, we'll be having a chat with Justin Johnson, who is the seasoned programmer from the BFI, all about their Making Magic 100 Years of Disney plans. So that's coming a little bit later in the show. Anyway, Sam, we've done a lot of plugging stuff. Is there any other business that we need to get into before the study group officially begins? Only that I watched and would like to encourage a lot of other people to watch the new Netflix movie Nimona, which came out this weekend as we're recording this. 
And that is a Disney-adjacent movie that was, in a way, almost a Disney film because that's an adaptation of the quite seminal, really, graphic novel by N.D. Stevenson, which was in development for a long time at Blue Sky, which was Fox's animation division. And when Disney bought 20th Century Fox, they obviously decided that another animation studio on top of Disney and Pixar was a bit redundant. Yeah, these are the guys who made like the Ice Age movies, they made Spies in Disguise, they made the Rio films, so they're they're a pretty established studio. Yeah, but tragically, really, they, they scrapped them because Blue Sky were becoming really an interesting studio i mean spies in disguise i thought was a good film it was a step above their usual standards but a few years before that there was the peanuts movie which was a really interesting film because it adapted the style of the charles schultz comic strips and the bill melendez peanuts cartoons to 3d to cgi in a really interesting and successful way which kind of predates spider-verse when it comes to bringing comic strip and cartoon aesthetics to 3d animation so this was a studio that was really on the up and up and then disney bought them decided they were no longer required and scrapped the whole thing including the production of Nimona. Which at the time apparently was 75% complete. They had a vast majority of Nimona made and Disney sacked off the studio and cancelled Nimona's production, which everybody was justifiably upset about. But luckily Nimona was picked up by Annapurna and Netflix and finally completed and it is a really cool movie and it looks cool. It's like a cel-shaded 3D which isn't a million miles away from certain sequences of Spider-Verse or also not a million miles away from what we've seen of Wish, and it's just a very dynamic film with lots of really cool action sequences, including some transformation battles, which are very reminiscent of the one in The Sword and the Stone, including several of the same forms occupied by Nimona, who is a kind of shape-shifting creature who teams up with the seemingly villainous Ballister Boltart to kind of take on the dominant hegemony of this fairy tale futuristic sci-fi kingdom they find themselves in. Uh, so it's a it's a story which is very kind of anti-authoritarian and also very heavy with LGBTQ themes and overt gay representation as well. So it's the kind of film that for various reasons you can't see Disney making under any circumstances, at least not in the way that that these guys did. You can kind of see why Disney wanted shot of it in a way, maybe, considering their track record on those themes and topics and representing those groups. But what we have is a a really strong piece of work which you can go and watch on Netflix right now. Yeah, it's on Netflix right now. It's an absolute blast. Before credits, it's like 85 minutes long. It's super energetic and fun and funny. And if you've listened to this podcast, uh, if you've listened to this going way back, I think you'd find it really interesting because it feels like that film exists as a sort of riposte to traditional fairy tale storytelling, to the kind of general binary of, of who's good and who's evil and what these stories tell us. Nimona is all about changing that narrative, but in a way that also is just really fun and entertaining and funny, and as Sam says, has great kind of shape-shifting sequences, great action in it, and a really distinctive look as well. So that is a great shout. If you are listening to this and you haven't watched Nimona yet, go to Netflix, go and find it, and come and thank us afterwards. Let us know how much you enjoyed Nimona. Okay, let's head on with the study group. 
let's begin by just looking back in general over the Renaissance. This was 11 films. That's more films than we've ever covered in a single era of the studio. And yet it was over a pretty condensed period of time. It was taking us from 1989 up until the year 2000. That's 11 films across 11 years. So the studio is going through this kind of supercharged period of change, of acceleration, How do we define this era? What does this era mean to you, Sam? It's a funny one, isn't it? Because I think, as really has been the case with a few of these eras, I think in particular the Dark Age, the phrase Renaissance is just something that's been around in the ether, has always referred to these films. Even if you go back to the late 1980s, you could see people like Jeffrey Katzenberg talking about a renaissance in Disney animation. This is a phrase that's always been applied to this era, even as it was ongoing. But I think... These films, when you look at them from a certain perspective, maybe have less in common than this grouping might suggest, or different things in common than people often take for granted. So I think you can look at the majority of these films and say these are fairy tale movies or fantasy movies, and they all follow kind of similar plot beats with similar character archetypes. They all have similar songs and similar types of song. They all have similar villains and similar heroes and similar princesses and similar sidekicks and all of that but then even if you just take that as a given you then have something like Tarzan which isn't quite a musical in the same way or The Rescuers Down Under and Fantasia 2000 which are completely different types of film altogether so you start to step away from this idea of the renaissance formula even though that is definitely something that I think you can say exists to an extent and it's certainly something that's important factor in how these films have been received and how they've been commented on and and referred to intertextually since the Renaissance. But you also have other trends that are visible, such as the intermingling of computer animation and 2D animation. And we're really at this kind of precipice point where animation as a Hollywood industry is about to jump headfirst into full 3D. Like Toy Story comes out exactly halfway through the Renaissance in 1995 and Shrek comes out almost immediately after the end of the Renaissance in 2001. So really this is the twilight for hand-drawn animation as this massive commercial force and you see a consistent creep of 3D animation all the way through the era to the point where by the end we've got something like the Steadfast Tin Soldier sequence in Fantasia 2000 which uses entirely 3D characters which is a real foreshadowing of where Disney are going to end up even in their very next movie which is Dinosaur. So you've got all of these ways in which this era is a throwback to classic Disney. It's a rebirth in that sense because, you know, Renaissance literally translates to rebirth. It's a rebirth of what Disney used to be. It's a rebirth of that style and that formula that you see repeated in a lot of the Golden Age and and Bangers era films. But it's also a rebirth in the sense that we are starting to see something new being born. We're starting to see that phoenix rise from the ashes, that forest sprite at the end of Fantasia 2000, coming back to life but in a new form, ready to sow its seeds all over the future of Hollywood animation. Yeah, for me, in a more simplistic way, it just feels like the (laughs) studio just hit a groove they just got into a new groove that's a prophetic term for where we're heading next but it felt like all these elements that have been brewing towards the end of the dark age of certain filmmakers coming into play of of musker and clements coming in with basil the great mass detective of the kind of incoming rise of people like alan menken and howard ashman 
of this kind of energy and fun to something like Oliver and Company all coalesces to this point that the studio is ready. It has all of these people in place, all of these ideas in place, and it just... There's just something about The Little Mermaid that just sets everything off. And as you say, it's telling fairy tale stories. It's bringing us back to traditional Disney princess territory. But it also sets them off once again on looking at bits of classic literature, looking at stories that take us around the globe, of stories that feel like they kind of embody what Walt Disney was doing back in the day and taking stories that either were already famous or that were about to be a big deal or looking to inspiration for stories that felt like they had some connectivity with what his outlook was, with what the studio's outlook was. And it feels like the Dark Age, part of the reason it is the Dark Age is because they just, for whatever reason, they just they just lost it a bit. There are some great movies in that era, but it doesn't have the confidence of this era of just they know what stories feel like Disney. They know what stories they can do justice to with the point that animation is at during this era, whether that's an extra level of fluidity and craft in the 2D animation. I think of the insane amount of bubbles in The Little Mermaid and the incredible attention to detail in that really traditional animation. But then what they're able to do, as you say, with like 3D animation, when you think of the stampede in The Lion King or the army sequences in Mulan, and especially something like the tree vine swinging in Tarzan, yeah, being able to not only take stories and think, oh, this feels like Disney, but to go, hey, we can push the art form a bit or we can do justice to this story. We can present it in a way that is going to be really exciting for audiences. It's been a, a blast to go through this era and see the studio develop, to see the studio in full flow again after a real kind of up and down over the last several decades of whether the animation studio would even exist or survive to get us back to this point. I've loved going through this era. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that this era is characterised by getting into a groove, because even though the next era starts with a new groove, it's very much not in that same groove or in any kind of groove. These movies in the next era, whatever it may be called, are all completely different from one another. They're all trying to do totally different things. It doesn't feel like the studio is is working towards a singular goal anymore. You've got a bunch of different teams doing totally different things. Hardly any of them are adaptations either. Hardly any of them are going back to, to literature or fairy tales or myth in the way that all of these stories have. And you also see over the course of this era and then really starting to take shape as we move into the next one, an evolution to an extent of the politics of these films and the social themes of these films. So we've talked long before the Renaissance about how obsessive the Disney studio is with this very, you know, no matter how supposedly progressive the themes of the film are in terms of being yourself and it being okay to be different, they have this very conservative endpoint all the time, which is that the deviant character, someone like Tramp, for example, someone like Pinocchio, becomes normalised, is, is reincorporated into conventional society. And we see an evolution of that kind of ending of that arc of that journey for our protagonists over the course of this era because you've got protagonists like Ariel, Belle and the Beast, Aladdin and Simba who no matter what they do, no matter what course they try to take during the film, 
end the film embracing domesticity, embracing normativity, embracing the trappings of the ruling class, for example. But then when you get to Pocahontas, Hercules, and then especially, as we pointed out, Tarzan, they start to blur that line. Like, Tarzan ends with a compromise. It doesn't end as I think it would have even ten years prior, and as it does in the novels, with Tarzan being integrated into British aristocratic society and and going off with Jane back to England. It ends with them forming this new society in the jungle which brings together the best of the ape world and the human world. And it's really interesting to see that kind of evolution as we go through. And when we start to look at the next era, we immediately start to see films like The Emperor's New Groove and like Lilo and Stitch, which much more overtly hit back at the traditional conservative Disney story and, and really push against it and give us a new kind of character and a new kind of ending. So it, it's a stage on the political journey that these films have taken, as well as the technological and the aesthetic and the commercial journey. I mean, I'm really excited for where we're heading next into another era of films that I don't really know very well. I haven't seen that many of them And yeah, it's going to be a real up and down journey, I think, through this next batch of films. But I am feeling sad at the prospect of moving away from hand-drawn animation. We're going to get to the point where they stop making hand-drawn animated films or films that feel like this era of Disney or where the studio began with Snow White. I'm kind of sad to see the end of that. Are you dreading the end of that era? A little bit. We've got a while to go yet, though, Ben. We've got, you know, a few more hand-drawn films and then a couple of little comebacks with The Princess and the Frog, for example, in 2009. Which, even The Princess and the Frog and the existence of it in 2009, by the way, speaks to the powerful influence that this era had on what people perceived Disney to be. When The Princess and the Frog came out, 2009, so I was like 17 or 18 years old, something like that. 17 maybe, and it felt like a huge deal that they were going back to hand-drawn animation, even though it had only really been five years, and they were going back towards a Renaissance-style story and musical, even though it had only been 10 years. But the absence of that in the succeeding 10 years was so strongly felt because of how successful the films from the 1990s were. And now we've reached a point where a good 50% of the films that Disney are putting out are still drawn really directly from this era, even though they are being made with more high-tech techniques. Yeah, I think as well as we said, the insane hit rate of this era that it was just like every year you go, 1989, Little Mermaid, 1990, we'll give it its shout-out, The Rescuers Down Under, then 91, Beauty and the Beast, 92, Aladdin, The Lion King... That is just insane. So then by that standard, five years from Princess and the Frog to presumably is it Home on the Range? Is that maybe the last one before then of the hand-drawn stuff? That's the last hand-drawn one before Princess and the Frog. That five-year gap in the Renaissance would have been like half of the Renaissance movies. The five years in this accelerated era, that's a long time. That's a lot of movies can see why people missed it i'm gonna miss it i've just got to hold that within myself as we head into this next era knowing that it's gonna come a time when the hand-drawn stuff goes away but it's still gonna be good they're gonna be good sam anyway for now let's have a look back over our favorite films from this era let's kick it off with our favorite songs from the renaissance and i want to begin this 
with, I think, just honestly the biggest earworm that we've had really since the show began that has come up a few times, and every time it does, it is stuck in my head for weeks on end. I can't stop singing it. It's just, like, always playing in the back of my mind. I end up singing it around the house. And I think it's because it's got these really catchy, direct lyrics that when you've got your shovel and you're pressing it to the ground and you just dig, dig, (laughs) dig, diggity dig, dig and dig and dig, diggity dig. It's just stunning stuff. No, I I couldn't resist. Shout out to Stephen Schwartz, master of the dig, dig, diggity dig. Uh, No, the one that is just, it's in my head right now, is Under the Sea. Under the Sea will never not be in my head. We started this era with The Little Mermaid, and in the weeks after recording that episode, I was like, man, we all know Under the Sea is great, but really, like, there's little like bits of lyrics just hanging around in there we'll be devoting full time to floating just that line (laughs) haunted me for weeks and i just about got it out of my head and then the 2023 little mermaid came out (laughs) and ever since i saw that it's been back it stays in my head at all times there is not a time there is not a day there is not a place that i'm at where a little bit of under the sea is not playing in the back of my mind yet okay undeniable fantastic song the new movie did do a pretty good job with it i think and it was a pretty fun sequence actually in that new movie as well even though it didn't have a hot crustacean band it didn't but it would have looked weird and they just decided let's just not do it and let's have a dance break with jellyfish instead like that that was a good decision that worked for me but they did just keep all of the lyrics about all of the individual <laughs> animals and what instruments they're playing. But I will say it made a point, right, of Sebastian is trying to hype up the fact that it becomes a metaphor again. It's literalized in the animated film. And then in this version, it becomes a stronger metaphor of its... Like, the sea is a symphony. You've got, you know, these fish embody these things, but they're not physically doing it, which is fine because that works so much better in the original animated version than in this. I'd stand by that choice. Uh, everything you've said is is very astute and true, but is it as good as a newt playing the flute? I just don't. <laughs> I don't think any metaphor can reach those heady heights of pure joy. You were so ready to see a cop play the harp. I was like partly looking at you at the corner of my eye during that sequence of like, is this crushing his soul? That the fluke is not the Duke of Soul here. There's a manatee swimming around. At the the fluke is the Duke of Soul. Boop. I mean, I do love manatees. Manatees are, are real top-tier animals for me, so that, that did a lot of work. But, as I think I probably say at the time, not my favourite song from that movie. I think the best song from that movie, and I think my favourite song from this era, and probably the best song Ashman and Mencken ever did, is Part of Your World. I think. Oh, I mean, it is kind of inescapable. Part of Your World is incredible, and I think... I think that's another thing, not to turn this into a discussion about the new Little Mermaid, but the new version of that, which I think is outstanding, I think Halle Bailey is just incredible and the way she sings it is unbelievable, to have her version and Jodie Benson's version that have their own little kind of spins on it, they have their own little accentuations of certain moments or certain phrases, but having those two versions and being able to put them side by side and just be like, it's the song. The singing can be as outstanding as you like, but the the construction of the song, the emotion of that song, the way that it rises and rises and rises to a point that 
again, seeing the 2023 version, it was just nice to see a Little Mermaid in the cinema. And at the moment where she kind of reaches her hand through up towards the surface at the crescendo of that song and it cuts to silence, you could have heard a pin drop in that cinema. And that's because that moment of the song, it has just, it's just got you. The song has got you. You're so in that emotion. You're so in that rising crescendo and you just have to take a second when she takes that breath. It's an incredible song. As you were hyping it up, I was like, wait, what is he talking about here? Another song from The Little Mermaid that was the num- the number one Ashman Menken song? But that is a strong shout. I think it is. It is the best song. It's just a perfect musical theatre song, which means it's a perfect encapsulation of Howard Ashman's whole ethos. And that's because it's extremely specific. It is about being a little mermaid who wants to walk on land and find out all this stuff about people. It's so specific. You could not put that in any other musical and have it make sense. It is about the story of the little mermaid that is all encoded in the lyrics. It's a crucial part of that story and it plays a really important role. It plays a function in that story. And yet, it's also a perfect encapsulation of an idea. It's the ultimate song about wanting something that's just out of your reach, wanting something that you can't have. The grass being greener on the other side and somebody else's lake, seaweed, all of that. (laughs) (laughs) I realised halfway through that figure of speech that Ashman had beat me to it. (laughs) In another song. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's the perfect encapsulation of that idea which is central to so many different musicals. And it is the pure kind of codification of the I Want song. It's the I Want song distilled to its essence while also being something really specific and meaningful for that character and for that story. Yeah, I agree with every single word you're saying and yet my thought for, okay, no, really though, what is like the best song from the Ashman Menken songbook in this era of Disney? I think it might be Belle, the opening song, the opening suite from Beauty and the Beast what is it, like six minutes? And it's introducing you to Belle, it sets up her character, it sets up the whole townsfolk. It's like they took everything that they knew was going to be great about The Little Mermaid, but they were maybe very slightly tentative about. And after that success, we're like, no, we can just absolutely go for it in Beauty and the Beast and have this incredible ensemble number, really, that is all about your central character, is setting up your central character, but it's all these voices from across the town, and they're all overlapping and intermingling with each other. The amount of storytelling in that song is incredible, You can't really divorce it as well from the sequence itself, from those incredible lingering camera shots going through the town of Belle in the reprise kind of spinning around on top of the hill as the sun sets behind her. That stuff, man, is amazing. That is also top tier Ashman Menken. It's really hard to pick them apart. But but that is way up there. As soon as you said that, I was like, oh, damn, he's, he's right. <laughs> it's one and two. It's like jostling for pole position with part of your world. But again, it's, it's the perfect encapsulation of a particular musical theatre idea of this big ensemble introductory song that takes you into this world, that takes you into this community. And also, in this case, really successfully tells you something about our central character and their relationship to that world and to those people as well. Again, it's Ashman the structuralist. It's Ashman knowing what 
needs to happen in a musical. This guy who has studied the history of musical theatre and knows exactly what goes where and which buttons to push, doing it to perfection to the extent that you don't notice that's what he's doing unless you're watching his lectures on the subject. It is extraordinary, and I must say... If you like this song, which you do, you have to watch the version on the live Beauty and the Beast show that ABC did a few years ago, which is on Disney+. Plus. It's called Beauty and the Beast, A 30th Celebration, which is a bad title, there's a word missing there, but it's, it's one of those live musical theatre performances that happen quite a bit on American Network TV, I believe, and this one has... Her, the singer Her, as Belle. It has Josh Groban as Beast. It has Rita Marino. It has Martin Short as Lumiere. It's a really stacked cast. But the the introductory rendition of Belle is so good because it, it happens live on TV on the Disney lot and they are moving through the actual Disney studio as lots of the people who work at that studio, including lots of the animators, are dotted around joining them with the song and doing what they do there's like artists drawing things as they happen i think alan menken is in there as well playing the piano it's it's a really really good performance of a really really good song yeah that for me is just one of the absolute standouts of this era and that rendition is incredible yeah absolutely go and check that out there are a few things that we have to throw out there though like Partly to stop Emily Murray knocking down our door. Yes, shout out to Phil Collins and the Tarzan soundtrack. It does absolutely bang. It's not the absolute best of this era for me, but it's, you know, it's great. It's very good. We applaud the soft rock. I do have to say, if we're talking about massive introductory songs that just completely blow your socks off, you can't not talk Circle of Life at the beginning of The Lion King And again, it's the song, but it's the entire sequence. It's all of the animals kind of flocking to Pride Rock. I'm getting tingles just thinking about that sequence. The absolute blast of the Leboem choir to kick off that movie and combined with the power of Hans Zimmer, combined with the power of Elton John, like a big old musical zord, um, (laughs) is just inescapable. That is knocking on the door of Belle and part of your world and under the sea for me. Uh, you, You can't get around The Lion King. As much as there are bops elsewhere in the film, the absolute power of Circle of Life is undeniable. And I think, and this is where it gets controversial, I think that is the only song from The Lion King that is absolutely upper echelon for me. The others from The Lion King, yeah, the others are all pretty, they're all pretty good, they're all excellent. I made a little list, I made a list of, it's not a top five, it's a top six, just before we recorded this, of my top tier, you know, just the ones that really, really stand out, the really perfect songs from this era. Circle of Life is the only one from The Lion King that's really on there, I do think it's, it's on another level from the rest of the Elton John songs in that film. Also on that list, Friend Like Me, which is another Ashman and Menken one, because of obviously some very clever lyrics, some classic Ashman fast patter lyrics, but also what a vehicle for Robin Williams's performance, which you know I'm sure we'll talk about more. But one of the standout things from this entire era of Disney, one of the definitive moments, is Robin Williams as the genie, and this song gives him so many opportunities to you know, do different voices and, and different cadences and different characters within 
the character of the genie and it's an amazing introduction to that character yeah i mean as we're talking about this stuff i think for me it solidifies something about this era in particular which as i said earlier on the studio is just in a groove everything is working so perfectly in sync and i think compared to any other era the songs here are more overt these are as we've said many times almost like broadway style broadway influenced also a bit of pop influence as well the songs work in a very different way especially even to the early disney movies where they were kind of either incidental or they were setting a mood these are big storytelling songs the songs are grabbier than ever and yet at the same time They are so well matched by the visuals. When we're talking about these songs, even though the songs themselves are great, we can't help but talk about them as sequences from the films. We can't help but talk about what the animators are doing to complement these songs, of the images that they're conjuring to set off against these songs. And I think that's something that's absolutely emblematic of this era, that yes, the songs are gigantic, but everything that is happening around them is as integral to to the power of these films and just creates these completely unforgettable sequences. For me, I guess another example of that would just be like pretty much everything that's happening in The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which is like the discovery of this era for me. If you've listened to that episode, I'd never seen that film before, but songs and sequences like The Bells of Notre Dame, Out There, and Hellfire... Uh, just, like, mind-blowing. For me, it's the some of the bits in between in that film that don't hold up as much, but the, the big musical sequences and Alan Menken absolutely cooking. He's cooking <laughs> on gas. He's belting it out from the top of Notre Dame itself because he's just that good. Yeah, Menken doing his thing. The animators going all out with the gothic intensity hunchback i i was blown away by so much of that film and hellfire in particular that's the musical standout right it definitely is for me that's mm. also on my absolute top flight of classics because we haven't even mentioned any of the villain songs this is the era where the villain song really comes into its own you've got poor unfortunate souls you've got be prepared and you've got hellfire which is probably the best of the bunch i think because of how unusual it is because of how genuinely dark it is it's not pantomime villain it's oh man this guy is screwed up this guy needs help and everyone around him needs help to escape from him it's properly dark and again it's an amazing animated sequence and the performance from tony j as well who was not a trained singer but is given full-on operatic bass in this song it's that movie's version of the moment in part of your world where everyone is just silent everyone just gasps it's just pure chills and yet through all of this discussion about the songs we haven't mentioned the one that you said on its episode is probably the best disney song ever which is Mulan, I'll Make a Man Out of You. That stands extremely tall. It's on my list. It's the last one in that top six. And yeah, I guess I was saving the best to the last, baby. (laughs) None of these songs would go off at a house party like (laughs) I'll Make a Man Out of You, unless you're at a party around Frollo's house, in which case, I guess, (laughs) Hellfire's coming out. Frollo's had too many drinks. He's too horny and he's scared that he's going to hell. He cranks up the thermostat and off he goes. <laughs> but I'll make a man out of you. It's like a proper power ballad, man. It's amazing. It's so propulsive and it makes you feel like a man. Not 
in like a, a really gendered way, but just like this fantasy version of this military Superman. The more that I talk about it, the worse it sounds. <laughs> but it makes you feel like a hero, I guess is what I mean. It makes you feel like the ideal version of yourself, who is as swift as the Corson River, who has all the strength of a great typhoon and the force of a raging fire, mysterious as, as the, the dark, dark side, side of the moon. Of the, the moon. Be a man. Oh, we must, like, we, we can't go here. down this track. <laughs> <laughs> we can't. We can't do it. Not right now. Come and see us live. Maybe we'll have a sing along of "I'll Make a Man Out of You." That is. That is not a guarantee. It's just a possibility. Okay, let's talk characters. Greatest characters from this era. And because we teed it up in the music section, let's talk about the villains. Because we have so many iconic heroes from this era, but the villains are popping off. As you say, Ursula, Scar, Jafar, Frollo, Hades, I guess? He was pretty fun. Hades is great. (laughs) Hades is excellent. Hades is not like any of the other villains. He he kind of feels more human. He definitely feels more contemporary than any of these other, again, like pantomime villains. This is just a manipulative, cruel, egotistical man who... You know, you're kind of more likely to meet. Every workplace, I think, has a guy like Hades, just like a smooth talker who thinks he can get other people to do whatever he wants. I do think Hades and Frollo kind of stand above the pack for me. I'm not sure if they are my favourites. Well, I think just because Ursula, Scar, Jafar, they're kind of part and parcel, right? They're similar to each other. They're all great. They're all camp and pantomime and, and delicious and broad and they're all extremely memorable i mean i think we're said in the aladdin episode actually jafar maybe falls a little bit short of the other two but scar and ursula certainly are definitive disney villains of the era but frollo and hades are both doing something completely different in a way that really stands out for me and, and there's never really been disney villains like them since either so yeah shout out to those two for me it really does have to be ursula her tentacles burst out of a human woman. She's got an incredible <laughs> song. Uh, yeah, I, I just love everything about that characterization. I think somebody who's really interesting, who really is the villain of their film, but also has a lot of different shades to play, is Gaston. I think Gaston's a really fun character because he ultimately is the person who is going to kill the beast at the end and he takes his extra pop at the beast uh, which ends up being his own downfall but the way that he gets to play his kind of swaggering ego as well as being this kind of idiot buffed up man child while also being a credible threat to the beast that is really well played yeah the arc that he has from just dumb jock to true villainous threat by the end to evil to vicious to nasty is impressive and fairly subtly drawn and really spoken to by the fact that he i think is the only villain from this era who has two songs because he has the big fun silly song he has gaston and then he also has the angry mob song which encapsulates everything that's wrong about who he is and what he represents yeah he is excellent In terms of heroes, though, I think what I really enjoyed about our discussions this era, Sam, is that we were able to dig a little bit more into characters like Ariel and Belle, who are at the centre of the narratives of those films, and 
when those narratives have been kind of unfairly flattened. We've spoken a lot about how in The Little Mermaid, that very reductive idea of like, oh, it's just about a woman who gives up her voice to be with a man. And it really wasn't about that. There was so much more to it than that. And the same with Beauty and the Beast of like, oh, she's held captive and then she falls in love with her captor. And how those characters actually, when you go back and revisit those films, have a lot of agency. They make active choices. They you know, are interesting characters in their own right. I'm glad we were able to dig into that. I thought Mulan was a fascinating character because the film is so much about the different facets of her identity and how she puts on different roles, whether that's who she's supposed to want to be in the matchmaker sequence in the village at the beginning, and then the role of Ping that she takes on to go and fight against the Huns, and how that kind of coalesces into a third central identity throughout the film. That was such a character study. I think there's been some fascinating characters through this era. Yeah, I do think even though, as we have talked about, characters like Ariel and Belle have a bit more depth and agency than they're given credit for, you do still see an evolution in in what the female Disney protagonist can be over the course of this era. And by the time we get to Mulan, that does feel like a more fully rounded character with more nuanced motivations than they had and that is one way in which the studio matures and it's one thing that I think they absolutely do carry forward when they revisit the princess archetypes with the likes of Tiana and Elsa and Moana. They really take someone like Mulan as a jumping off point to build on what those characters can be, what those characters are allowed to be within their films. And this is also an era where like the Disney sidekick really comes into its own. We're no longer in the world of Jack and Gus, the annoying mice, (laughs) just taking all of the air out of the room whenever they come in. That sounds quite harsh. Hey, this is consistent with your feelings on Cinderella when we did that episode. A lot of mouse antics. It's a bit much. But now we have, even in Pocahontas, where there's still a lot of kind of antics detours, that's the most antics-heavy movie of this era. Shout out to Flit and Miko, my guys. Yeah, but they are a lot... I mean, first of all, they don't talk, which is a godsend, but they are (laughs) a lot more entertaining and fun to be around and appealing than the mice in Cinderella, I would argue. But then, because of someone like... Robin Williams, who broke the door down and allowed them to bring in slightly more well-known actors, making more kind of pop culture references and stuff like that. Not to an insane degree. The genie's obviously the peak of that, but it's still really nice to see characters like Timon and Pumbaa, who do feel very much post-genie. Maybe the Gargoyles and Hunchback and Notre Dame take it a little bit too far. Oh, but then even pre-genie, you've got Lumiere and you've got Sebastian. You've got Scuttle, Golden Age for sidekicks. Oh my god, Scuttle, just the absolute true hero of The Little Mermaid. OG Scuttle, original Scuttle, such a dude, love him so much. I think you're right though, if you think of any character from this era, of anything that was just a time and a place and an energy and a magic to both the voice performance and the animated performance, Genie in Aladdin, you know, that is just completely next level. He warps the entire film around him. He brings so much energy. Robin Williams in full flow. The voice of our childhoods for you and me, like what he's able to do, the limitless possibilities of Robin Williams' voice performance and the riffs he goes on and the gags that he comes up with and then the way that the animators, including Disney Versity legend 
Eric Goldberg could complement that on the screen and create this limitless possibility imbued character is just completely masterful. I think if I had to pick a character who just has transcended their story, their scenes, their everything, like it's the genie. The genie has almost become its own thing. Yeah, I do think if you have to pick the single most influential thing that happened during the Disney Renaissance, it would be the casting and performance of Robin Williams as the genie. The shockwaves of the Robin Williams performance are still being felt today. It wasn't the first celebrity performance in an animated film by any means, but it brought such an enormous amount of success to that movie, and it was such a clear association between uh, character and a performer and what that performer is known for, that we don't get any of the celebrity performances in any of the DreamWorks films, for example, any of the latter-day Disney films, any of the Blue Sky films, any of that. Like, If you look at any of the animated movies that have come out in the last year even, there are performances in those films, casting decisions in those films, that would not have been made were it not for the influence of, of Robin Williams in Aladdin. Right then. I think, with all of that said, it is time to rank the Renaissance movies. And this is a tough one. This is a banger-packed era, even more so maybe than the bangers era. That is TBD. We'll find out when we do our updates on our top fives. But how do you want to do this, Sam? How should we present? Should we basically count down together? What's your number 11, is what I'm asking. Yeah, we'll start at 11 and then we'll alternate, I think. And I'm so excited for this. This is the most excited I've ever been for a ranking because it's so (laughs) unpredictable. I think I'm going to put this out there, right? We'll see whether this is accurate. I predict our top four films, I think, will will definitely be the same. I'd be amazed. Not necessarily the same order, but I'd be amazed if our top four didn't include the same four films. Okay. I think, in all likelihood... Our top two will also be the same, although not necessarily in the same order. Ooh, I'm excited. Okay. And I think everything below number four will be complete <laughs> carnage. And I think there will be fights <laughs> because I just can't figure it. I just can't see how this is going to play. <laughs> I know that you're going to be mad at me. <laughs> you're going to be upset with me. Uh, I think oh, you God. might be shocked at me. I don't think you've ever been mad at me, but I, I think you might be. <laughs> it's a strange one, man. Yeah, well, I can imagine our number 11 is the same. My number 11 is Rescuers Down Under. Oh, well, already no. (laughs) Really? What's your number 11? My number 11 is Pocahontas. Oh, okay. I should have seen that coming. Yeah, okay. You were pretty vocal on that one, that it was not one you watched as a kid. It's not one you've really gone back to. There are various reasons why that is a tricky film these days. I have to say, I am so thankful Camilla Townsend, who came on that episode to uh, discuss Pocahontas and the history and the legacy of Pocahontas. That is one of my favourite discussions that we've had on the podcast. But yeah, you were pretty open about that not being anywhere near your favourite from this era. Yeah, and I mean, I was pleasantly surprised by aspects of Pocahontas. There was some visuals in it that really took me aback on this occasion, like the amazing forest landscapes and stuff but i think it is you know we've got some stephen schwartz heads who came for us on twitter about my hatred of diggity dig and all that i do think it's the weakest set of songs from the renaissance on top of everything else and yeah obviously there's the political and historical four pars as well and also i think so rescuers down under is my number 10 okay and that's obviously not on par with what would come after 
but it's a really important film in terms of what it did with computer animation. I think it's a really successful film often in terms of what it does with computer animation. Those action scenes are very spectacular and it's just a fun adventure movie, which is kind of what you said about the original Rescuers, right? Like you were yeah. happy to come across just a cool, almost Bond-esque action adventure film at that point in time. And I think I kind of feel the same way about Rescuers Down Under. Not top tier, but definitely better than Pocahontas, in my opinion. Yeah, I enjoyed Rescuers Down Under. It's just, in this era, it's always going to get muscled out a bit. But shout out to Marahute. Loved Marahute. Really, the reason it's at number 11, no Orville. Where was mm. Orville? You know? Bring in Orville, and it's going up a couple of places. But for now, it's my number 11. And after that is Fantasia 2000 for me at 10, which has some excellent sequences in it. I just struggle to rank that against the narrative features, you know? Yeah, it obviously is difficult to compare them. And as with all anthologies, apart from probably Fantasia, the first one, it is hit and miss, you know, in the way that a lot of those package features were. They all featured great stuff, but just not the most consistent overall. But when Fantasia 2000 is good, it is so, so good. And Rhapsody in Blue, which I guess we've talked about best songs. Shout out to Rhapsody in Blue. (laughs) I know it wasn't like a Disney original, but maybe one of the best pieces of music that Disney put out in this era. So is that your number nine? That's my number nine. Okay, cool. So you're at Pocahontas, Rescuers Down Under, Fantasia 2000. I'm at Rescuers Down Under, Fantasia 2000. Here we go. Hercules! Hercules is a nine! Hercules is below Pocahontas for me. How does that make you feel, Sam? (laughs) I mean, look, it's, again, like me with Pocahontas, (laughs) it's not exactly unexpected, but that is an enormous disparity between where it is on my list. Because when you said our top fours are going to be the same, I would have assumed that potentially Hercules is in your top four, but it must not Uh, be because you know that it wouldn't be in mine. Yes, yes, there you go. (laughs) You're thinking four-dimensionally, that's excellent. I mean, yeah, it's certainly, uh, that is, to me, a big underrate on your end, and I would like you to please justify yourself. I just, I didn't connect with the characters. I loved the music. I thought there were fun bits in the animation, but I didn't love the style of it. The comedy didn't necessarily land for me. The characters didn't necessarily land for me. I didn't feel that warmth towards Hercules. I think there's loads of great stuff in it. As I said, again, this is just a super stacked era. It's hard for anything to get above what half of these films are doing. So it's ended up quite low down my ranking, but I do still think it's probably a three-star film for me. It's got some great stuff in it. What's your number eight? So I'll preface this by saying that from eight onwards, these are all excellent. Okay. This is the point where, for me, the list becomes unimpeachable. So I'm not that mad at the fact that you've got Hercules that low because every movie that you have above Hercules, I think you can make a fair argument that it is a better film. Apart from Pocahontas, which kind of has thrown me. (laughs) But you were a bit more up on that one than me anyway, so okay, whatever, it is what it is. My number eight, and this is going to be a big disparity again, you're going to have this a lot higher. My number eight is Hunchback of Notre Dame. Oh, no, I don't have it that much higher. It's in this middle section for me is, is Hunchback, because... I don't know if it's the same for you, but like we mentioned with the sequences there, the songs and the musical sequences in Hunchback are top, top tier, absolutely knocking it out of the park. The film itself 
is a bit up and down. There are points where I think the pacing drags a little bit. There's certain characters like Phoebus. Oh, yeah. And yeah, that just, you know, I'm never that thrilled to be spending a couple of minutes with Phoebus. <laughs> But, you know, the the stuff that is exceptional in that film really blew me away. So to skip ahead a little bit, that is my number seven. Pocahontas is my number eight. Pocahontas, it's on the lower end of things for me in this era, but I grew up with that film. There's stuff I love in that film. There's a level of just that was a big part of my childhood and some of the songs like Colours of the Wind, Just Around the River Bend. I love those songs. That makes me feel more emotion than Hercules does, which is why Pocahontas is just above Hercules and then Hunchback for me. Yeah, I can totally see that with regards to Pocahontas. And yeah, okay, so we're more or less in the same place on Hunchback. I think for me, it's just that it's a really, really great musical. It's the songs, and as a whole, you know, the songs, that the totality of those songs, more so than maybe any individual one, that work really well together. And that is why I really would like to see the stage version where they dial back on the gargoyles, add more music, and I can just see that being a lot more cohesive and tonally consistent. My number seven, is that where we're at? Yep. Tunchback was your number seven. My number seven is Mulan. My number six is Mulan, so we're kind of in okay. sync. We're, it's really just Pocahontas that's thrown things out of whack. Okay, uh, Pocahontas and Hercules. Yes. Yes, yeah, so seven Mulan, it is mid-tier, I think. It's just the weight of what's above it. It's purely the weight of what's above it. I can barely think of anything negative to say about it. It's one of the weaker soundtracks, I would say. So Reflection is good, I'll make a man out of you is exceptional, and then the other two songs are a bit weaker and there's not many songs so it's one of the weaker soundtracks overall that's really all i've got against it It is a really really good movie there's just a lot better stuff on top of it for me it's really tied with hunchback because i think mulan is more consistent than hunchback but it doesn't have the incredible highs necessarily that hunchback has so yeah mulan is my number six what's your number six my number six, and again, this could be a dark horse high entry for you, but my number six is Tarzan. Okay, my number five is Tarzan. Again, we're relatively in sync. Well, I think we're about to sync up completely after this, but uh, yeah, just a few words on Tarzan. I think this is one that kind of blew us both away. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was your first time watching it, right? First time on Tarzan, and yeah, it, it knocked my socks off. I thought it was incredible. Much like Tarzan himself, you were sockless. <laughs> you can go and slide off on those vines <laughs> barefoot. I, I had seen it many times. I'd seen it loads when I was a kid, and I'd seen it a few times as an adult. And for some reason on this watch through, again, it just took me aback... We didn't mention when we were talking about our favourite characters. I really love Jane. I really love what Main Driver was doing. And that's one of our biggest bust-ups. Are we, are we relitigating the Jane conversation? Is that happening? Let's not. Everybody's in your corner on that one. We ran a little poll at some point of whether people liked Jane or didn't like Jane. 90% of people liked Jane. <laughs> there, there, are, there are a few of us who are on the nay camp. But otherwise, everything else in Tarzan for me was just outstanding really incredible animation great songs so exciting and dark and thrilling and phil collins can't go wrong with that tarzan is my number five which presumably then your number five is hercules which then means that our top four is the same set of four films so yeah my number five is hercules i accept a lot of what you say about it i absolutely agree that 
the emotion isn't quite there and that the certainly the character of Hercules is maybe one of the less well drawn and I mean that as a character not as a, as a piece of art because I do love the art style of this film and I know you don't but I think he's one of the less fully realised let's say protagonists of the era but I think the music's amazing I really like the art style and it's an important movie for me because of the ways in which it pushes the Disney formula and pushes the boundaries of the Disney world the way that it is more intertextual and it is more anachronistic and it extends that to the entire filmic world in a way that Aladdin doesn't. It just relegates it to the genie. So I think Hercules is really underrated as a stepping stone in the development of what feature animation in America would soon become with movies like The Emperor's New Groove and Shrek. But I also fully concede that this is, more than any other film in the Disney canon, the one where my obsession with it as a child has probably influenced my ranking a little bit. No, I think a lot of people love Hercules. There was a a divided reception. I know a couple of people messaged me and said, oh, I wasn't massive on Hercules either. But I think overall that is... That is a big film for people who grew up in our kind of generation, so you're not alone in that. But that means then, between us, our top fours are some combination of The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and The Lion King. And for me, picking between those has been so hard, but I will say I had a clear number four, and my one to three literally could have been in any order i don't know if i'd look at my one to three now and be like oh did i get that wrong but i'm pretty set on my number four which is aladdin aladdin is just a smidge lower than those other films for me i think just in terms of the other ones are just absolute complete knockouts and maybe aladdin as a comedy just doesn't necessarily have that extra level of emotional punch or that underlying gravitas to it i don't know why it just sits below the others for me but as i was wrestling so hard with that top three i wasn't there going oh maybe aladdin should be right up there those four movies are seismic though right Mm. those four movies are i hold nothing against the rescuers down under it's a good movie and it's an important movie but if you take it out if it was not made when it was, if you, if it came out before Little Mermaid, then what you would have is one of the greatest four film runs in the history of animation, maybe in the history of cinema. It's so good. They are all really crucial, important, excellent movies in their own way. And I was not so dead set on Aladdin being number four. And in fact, I swapped Aladdin and my number three just before we started recording. Right. I had Aladdin at number three for a long time. And then I just thought to myself, would it be that good if you took out the genie? If you take out the genie, you also take out by far the two best songs in that film. And you're left with a much more traditional and a much less exceptional film and obviously the genie is in it and that's a big part of it and everything else is good but if you're ranking those four movies i think there's good reason for that to be a clear fourth if you have to split those hairs yeah and as you say splitting hairs is exactly where we're at with this and it was tough enough putting aladdin at number four but these top three there is so little between them so i'm gonna go through my top three and as I say it out loud, I, don't, I still don't know if this is right, but I have it down. My number three is The Little Mermaid, my number two is The Lion King, and my number one is Beauty and the Beast. 
Exactly the same. Really? We got the same? Yeah. Okay. The exact same top four. Because I was so blown away revisiting The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. I think Beauty and the Beast is just a tiny bit above The Little Mermaid, as we said in terms of the songs. It's like everybody involved, especially at Ashman and Mencken, with Beauty and the Beast, were just like, okay, let's go. Let's really go for it. I love the Trousdale wise gothic milieu of Beauty and the Beast. I think that just gives it an extra level of like epic punch. It feels like it's in that lineage going back to Sleeping Beauty, which up until this point is number one on my ranking overall of everything we've watched on the podcast so far. So there's a little bit in between Beauty and the Beast and The Little Mermaid. The Lion King, though, the Lion King with those songs and the colour and the epic scope and the scale of the story and the emotion driving it through and that film is my childhood to a huge extent that and Toy Story just are so intrinsically linked to the first 10 years of my life at least it's so hard to pick between them but yeah Beauty and the Beast number one Lion King number two The Little Mermaid number three the tiniest of hairs between all of them. Yeah, I had a similar thought process because Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast are extremely similar. And, you know, they're both Ashman and Mencken, they're coming from the same place. But almost everything that is good about The Little Mermaid is better in Beauty and the Beast. I think you could argue that Sebastian is maybe better than Lumiere as a sidekick. And I think you could argue that Ursula is better than Gaston as a villain, although I'm not sure I would make either of those arguments right now. Uh, I just think Beauty and the Beast exceeds that film in every way. And yeah, The Lion King's in the middle because it's great. And it, for a long time, The Lion King was number one. If you asked me before we started this era, what is the best film of the Disney Renaissance? I would 100% have said The Lion King. Really? And then, okay. Yeah, 100%. And then watching them through, it's the biggest change that I've made as we've been doing this podcast is swapping Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King. And I, I've mentioned it many times before. For three years now, I've kept a top 200 animated films list going on Letterboxd, and that's my entire identity, is is locked <laughs> in that list, you know? And the upper echelons of that list, like the five-star echelons of that list, they don't change much, Ben. They certainly, if I haven't seen a new film, they don't change much. I don't rethink really that. That's locked. That's me. That's who I am. But <laughs> Lion King is not as good as Beauty and the Beast. It turns out I was wrong. I was living a lie for years. And so now Beauty and the Beast is in your top five ever animated films on Letterboxd. Is that what you're saying? I I can't remember. Oh, wait, no, I can remember. No, it's not. It's not in my top five. Okay. Intriguing. Well, what does this mean then for our rankings from across the whole podcast so far? The last time we did this, because mine didn't change with The Dark Age, my top five films. Uh, So my ranking was 101 Dalmatians at five, The Jungle Book at four, Bambi at three, Lady and the Tramp at two, and Sleeping Beauty at one. And there's so much going on in this era that I'm going to propose, instead of just updating our top fives, we need to start expanding this out into a top ten. Does that work for you? Yep, it works for me. I've got them here. They're on the letterbox list. (laughs) Remind me, what was your top five last time? My top five last time was Lady and the Tramp number five, Jungle Book, Sleeping Beauty, Fantasia, Pinocchio. Oh God, Pinocchio still knocking around at your number one. Please tell me, (laughs) is that that changing now? We'll find out. 
Okay. Well, what's your top 10? Put me out of my misery. Okay, my top 10, I'm already questioning this because my my number 10, as it was, was Dumbo, would be Dumbo. But now I'm thinking, like, Winnie the Pooh is number 11 for me. And um, I think, probably, I think I connect more to Pooh than Dumbo. Dumbo is such a tight film, but I think I might have to swap those two. It's, it's, it's Dumbo or Pooh. Number nine, Lady and the Tramp. Number eight, new entry at number eight, it's Aladdin. Yeah? Okay. Number seven, Little Mermaid, new entry. Number six, Jungle Book. Number five, Lion King. Number four, Sleeping Beauty. Number three, Beauty and the Beast. Number two, Fantasia. Number one, Pinocchio. Pinocchio, what hold does he have over you? What <laughs> What blackmail is Pinocchio mailing through your door on a daily basis with his creepy little puppet hands? To ensure that number one spot. I... I'm not lying, Ben. If I was lying, you'd see it as clear as the nose on my face. <laughs> you'd be the Lion King. Okay, well, that is insanity that I respect, I think. <laughs> my top ten, and I would never have thought this would be in my top ten. Obviously, we've got quite a few films still to go. But if you have asked me when we started this podcast, will Tarzan at any point be in your top 10 Disney movies? I would have thought no. But it is my number 10 now. My number 10 is Tarzan. My number 9 is 101 Dalmatians. My number 8 is The Jungle Book. My number 7 is Aladdin. My number 6 is Bambi. Bambi still holding really strong. I would have been devastated if we were just doing top 5s that Bambi wouldn't be there anymore because Bambi is just incredible. So Bambi is my number six, my top five. Number five, Lady and the Tramp. Number four, The Little Mermaid. Number three, The Lion King. Number two, Beauty and the Beast. Number one is still Sleeping Beauty. But the fact that Sleeping Beauty is my number one and Beauty and the Beast is number two... I've got a side of Disney that I really like and it turns out it's gothic princess stories. So that's us nearly done for this study group, but we have some business to attend to before we close this off. Namely, what the hell are we going to call the next era of the show? So far, we have had the first five features. We had the package era. We had the bangers era. We had the dark age. And now we've just had the Disney renaissance. Now, the next era of Disney, which, to be clear, we'll be covering from dinosaur right up until Bolt, it doesn't really tend to have a specific name in the way that the Disney Renaissance, or obviously everybody now calls it the Bangers era, that I think goes down as what, Silver Age Disney, sometimes people call that. We gave it its own name because we thought that was more fun. And now we're in the position of being able to name this era because it doesn't really have one. But we have had some suggestions. Thank you to everybody who has been tweeting us since we put up the Fantasia 2000 episode with suggestions. I really enjoyed from Daniel Watkins calling it the Bangover Part 2. That really made me chuckle. We also had the excellent suggestion from Scott Matthewman of the Menaissance or like the Menaissance. That's pretty oh, good. Oh, I get it. I thought you meant like as in a menace, like how <laughs> Spider-Man's a menace. <laughs> Real J. Jonah Jameson vibe. No, the menaissance, the bang over part two, some very funny suggestions in there. As we had suggested by 
Z. David Van Norman, a name that we've had thrown around a few times as the experimental era. That was on our list, wasn't it, Sam? The experimental era. That's on the short list, yeah. And it, and it works, right? Because it's not overtly pejorative. A lot of people have called this the second Dark Age, which I don't think is really fair. I went with the Dark Age for the last Dark Age because it has multiple meanings. Yes, it was a period of maybe creative instability, let's say, but a lot of those films were thematically dark as well, which I don't think really applies to what we're about to encounter. Uh, So the experimental era works well because that is what they are doing. After the Renaissance, Disney don't know who or what they are, right? Especially after Shrek, it's like they're not allowed to make fairy tale movies anymore. And what they do instead is try all sorts of different things, all sorts of different visual styles, different genres, very few musicals coming out. They are experimenting. So I like that. Other names that I've kind of have battered around that I think have that same meaning, the freak era, which... <laughs> the freak era? The freak, well, that's core Disneyversity jargon right, right now, the right? the TDLF era. Yeah, <laughs> each of these movies are tr- maybe not truly disgusting, truly Disney little freaks. <laughs> they are undeniably Disney, but they are also undeniably little freaks. Uh, the Oddbod era. That's, oh. I don't know if that's come up on the podcast enough, but that's kind of core Ben vernacular. You're always calling things Oddbods. <laughs> the key part of our lexicon is, uh, you know, just Oddbod. It, it's not, again, it's not pejorative. It's just recognising that something just has an off-kilter energy. This does seem like it is going to be a bit of an Oddbod era. This is my personal favourite suggestion so far. Uh, what, what else have we got? Well, if we continued with the theme of the renaissance and looked at like a subsequent era in western european cultural history we could go with the enlightenment i don't know if that really describes what we're about to encounter (laughs) but that's what like roughly comes after the renaissance the enlightenment could you describe brother bear and home on the range as enlightened (laughs) um well well we'll get to it when we get to it i suppose (laughs) no spoilers certainly not chicken little um chris pallant who's an academic who wrote a seminal book called demystifying disney where he breaks disney down into eras he calls it neo disney like the matrix um yeah these are the post 1999 (laughs) (laughs) yeah these are the disney movies that keanu reeves likes the most as well so it makes a lot of sense now neo disney because you know it's new it's different although you know this book came out in 2012 so the era wasn't really over yet or it had only just ended so you know it's not really neo disney anymore it's no longer new it's no longer current or contemporary all oh, the wilderness years that's another one i thought of because it's Ooh. like yeah they're like wandering around well first of all obviously brother bear again is set in the wilderness and um, <laughs> parts of of the emperor's new groove as well maybe bits of home on the range it's a different kind of wilderness anyway there's, there's a few wildernesses okay. but also they don't know what they're doing again they're wandering around they're trying to figure out what works a bit like me in the legend of zelda tears of the kingdom <laughs> wandering the wilderness looking for the next beacon yeah. looking for the next shrine in the distance to go and get my next piece of heart the metaphor has definitely fallen down but I've re- i like the wilderness era that's or the wilderness, the wilderness years. years. Well, that's another conversation we had. You were like, no, it has to have the word era in it. But they haven't all had the word era in it. I think we can get away with wilderness years. It sounds yeah. romantic. The wilderness years. And like I said, we're not going to have a hugely long break before we get on with that. But that's going to be it's going to be an autumnal era for us, Sam. That's Most of these episodes will probably come out through the autumn months. Something about the wilderness years as the leaves are falling just feels correct. It just feels right. 
I'm I'm kind of leaning towards the wilderness years. All What's right. your favorite? Let's go with I mean Odd Body Era. Odd Body Era. Maybe maybe <laughs> it'll be interchangeable with the Odd Body Era. <laughs> it's it's the wilderness years slash Odd Body Era. Okay, uh, but officially, should we should we go wilderness years? I think so. That feels right. You have literally heard us decide this on the podcast. So. Yeah, we truly had not decided this in advance. I like that. I've got a good feeling about this. So the next era of Disneyversity will be the wilderness years. And I think there's going to be some interesting areas that we're heading into. We're going to go further into 3D animation. We're going to see the studio attempt different types of stories and move away from some of the tropes that they were leaning into in the Renaissance era. We're going to see them face even stiffer competition from fellow studios like Pixar. We're going to see the studio try and find its identity again as it heads into this brave new world, heads off the beaten path. The wilderness years, Sam, this is this is really working for me. This feels good. It's like a mythical rock star. Who knows where they went? Ooh, they were off writing weird little songs out in the woods. But the weird little songs out in the woods for Disney is like a film about cows on the range i don't i know nothing about home on the range other than it's cows and i think maybe alan menken oh yeah but anyway this has been an exceptional era for disney i've loved this era getting to talk about all these films on the podcast i just want to shout out all of our guests who've joined us in this era it's been such a blast having you all on so thank you beth webb for joining us on rescuers down under Thank you to Paul Shear for joining us for Aladdin, to Amon Warman for The Lion King, Camilla Townsend for your appearance on Pocahontas, Mike Munzer from The Evolution of Horror for our Hunchback of Notre Dame episode, Rihanna Dillon for our Mulan episode, and Emily Murray for Tarzan. Thank you guys so much for being part of this journey with us. And thank you to everyone who's been listening and whether you've discovered us during this era or whether you've been with us from the very beginning. Thank you so much for still being here. Thank you so much for listening. And yeah, I hope you're ready to follow us into the wilderness as we enter the next era of the podcast. Sam, it's going to be one heck of a journey. Now, just before we wrap up, we are very, very pleased to welcome to the show Justin Johnson, seasoned programmer from the BFI, who's going to tell us a little bit more about the Making Magic 100 Years of Disney season at the BFI. Hey, Justin, how's it going? It's going good. Thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, thanks for joining us. It is a couple of days out from the opening of the season. As we record this, we're like three days away from all of this kicking off. How, how is this week for you? How are you feeling right now? It's good. You know, I'm really looking forward to Thursday night. Thursday night is going to be, as you say, our kind of launch event. We've had a few screenings already. We had Mo Sutton yesterday with Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Mo was um, Dick Williams' wife and uh, as a filmmaker and producer in her own right. But she offered some very interesting insights to the world of Roger Rabbit. And then on Thursday, we've got David Park, who worked with Pixar on a number of their films before now being here at Passion Pictures in London. And so he's on our panel, along with a couple of very highly regarded academics who are going to be with us and we're going to be showing some clips and talking about various themes to do with Disney and then we're going to be following it with the UK premiere of Cinderella the 4k restoration of the 1950 classic incredible which um looks staggering I mean it's brilliant so I'm going to speak very directly because I think Disney probably knows this themselves but when Disney have done restorations in the past they've principally been for their sort of home entertainment releases and being really honest they haven't always been great they've, they've just done the bare necessities they kind of tidied up a bit but this time they've absolutely gone back. They've looked at all the color palettes. They've restored, like, you know, things like the color of Sleeping Beauty's hair and 
it just looks completely fresh and brilliant. I don't imagine it's ever looked better, to be honest. That is super exciting. We're going to see Walt Disney's favourite piece of animation ever, the transformation of Cinderella's dress in shiny, spangly new 4K. So just before we get on uh, to talk about the season, we have to ask you the questions that we ask every single guest who enters the hallowed halls of Disneyversity, which is, uh, what are the big Disney films for you as a kid? Which are the ones that you grew up on? What takes you back? Well, obviously, you can always age people by this question. <laughs> I think I would have come in probably on the first sort of refresh of Jungle Book. We're talking kind of mid-70s, so it would have been Jungle Book I remember seeing vividly. Uh, I remember seeing The Rescuers, and I remember seeing Robin Hood. I know that, you know, that going into the sort of area or the era that some people look on less fondly, but I have hugely fond memories of those films. And Robin Hood, now I completely understand some of the minor criticism people level against it. But actually, for me, I still find it just as charming. And I was so thrilled when yesterday I was just out and about and I heard somebody's ringtone on their phone and it was the Alnadale whistle from Robin Hood. And it made me so heartened to hear that, that somebody else <laughs> loves that as much as I do. One of the catchiest tunes in the world. Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic film, isn't it, Robin Hood? And I think that is an era that is unfairly maligned by some people, by certain circles, but so many people from any age group that you talk to that's a huge film of theirs. We always talk about the fact that people our age, when we were kids, a lot of the really big movies like Cinderella were in the Disney vault and the only stuff you could reliably get access to on VHS were things like Robin Hood. So I think for every generation since it was released, that movie's been a really big deal and people have really nostalgic feelings towards it. I mean, that whole thing around the Disney vault that you just touched on, and I just touched on then by saying about the second wave of Jungle Book, if you like, it's, it's such a clever marketing policy to do that. You know, this is a time before the films were ever shown on TV. Disney really resisted their films being shown on TV for a really long time. The closest you get at my time was they used to do a thing called Disney Time, where you'd have a celebrity, it might be Tom Baker or somebody, would front a programme and they would show clips of Disney films past and whatever was kind of coming up. And that was the nearest you ever got. If you weren't in the cinema, you could never see Cinderella or Snow White or Pinocchio. You had to wait for them to come on the cycle where they would just re-release them once every so often. And um, because they stood up so well and they were so sought after, that was such a brilliant thing to do. Yeah, and in a sense, we're really lucky these days that everything is just on Disney+, Plus and we can just go and watch these movies whenever we want. But then on the other hand, what that's taken away from us is the fact that these movies used to be re-released in cinemas all the time. So something like the BFI event is a great opportunity to actually go and catch them on the big screen. And you're right, and people obviously always talk about it being a big screen experience, but actually, when you're watching those films, like, you know, Cinderella, where I was saying about the beautiful colours and everything. When I saw that, I saw it at the world premiere of the Restoration in Germany in Berlin in February. And I hadn't really thought about the fact it was actually going to be in German with knowing this subtitles. <laughs> but actually, that made me really appreciate the film even more, just looking at the beauty of what I was seeing on the screen in a way that I would never have done if it had been on TV. Yeah, most people's experience of these movies is on TV, right? Like, for people my age have probably never seen movies like Cinderella in a cinema, but going to see them like this, especially in restored versions, means that you're able to experience a version of what audiences experienced in 1950 when this movie first came out. In just a second, we're going to ask you about the programme that you've put together for the BFI season and the films that you're bringing back to the big screen. Just before we do that, I do have to ask, what are the films that mean a lot to you now from the Disney canon? Which ones are ones that weren't necessarily a big part of your childhood, but that have impacted you in recent years? And I can't tell you how much I love Pinocchio. Pinocchio is my absolute 
favorite Disney film. Maybe one of my all-time favorite films. You and Sam are on a level with this. I was horrified watching Pinocchio. It just completely freaked me out. I couldn't handle it. But it's Sam's number one Disney film so far of everything we've watched in the podcast. It's, an, it's the most extraordinary film for so many different reasons. I mean, not just the sheer beauty, you know, the multiplane camera really coming into its own, you know, in terms of all those incredible backdrops and the, the layering of characters in the backdrop, the richness of the colours, but actually, you know, even though it's based on the story, you know, the darkness of that story is incredible. I mean, you know, just one of my clips on Thursday, it's a clip where they're turning into the donkeys and they go off to the salt mines because there's no happy ever after for those children. Those boys who have been a bit naughty, as boys often are, turn into donkeys and are sent to the salt mines forever. They're not coming back. There's no ticket back for them. I mean, that is dark as it gets, isn't it? It's Cronenberg for kids. Come on, children. (laughs) Everybody's welcome here. It's horrifying from front to back, but in a very impressive way for me. I don't know if that's convinced you at all there, Ben. (laughs) Maybe. At least I have a chance to brace myself that I'm going to see the donkey scene on the big screen on Thursday night. I'm happy to have a little bit of warning about that. As difficult as it was choosing which films to play in the season, even just finding you know, which clips to play was incredibly difficult because what do you want to say about Disney and creating a season, sort of segueing into what you were saying before, is also really difficult because it can't just be about your favourites. It has to be about what's the story you want to tell about the Disney 100? What are the films that are going to illustrate that well? Uh, and obviously, you know, you can allow your own personal taste. But like, for example, I haven't got Robin Hood in there for various reasons because I only had a certain number of titles I could use. I wanted to ensure that I had some live action I wanted some Touchstone. I wanted some Pixar. So I couldn't just play 50 of the sort of 61, inverted commas, classic animated titles. So that was an incredibly difficult decision to make. Um, and I have made some contentious decisions, which are perhaps more to do with my own personal foibles as well, that I know I haven't actually been picked up in it yet. I've, I've been expecting to be. But there's a couple of quite significant omissions, I would say, when you look at the July and August program. I mean, there's one, I don't know if I say it or not, I'm going to invite your heart, but I haven't put Dumbo in, for example. Okay, I can see that, though. So Dumbo is one of those films that I remember, you know, John Lasseter and lots of other people have cited as being their all-time, you know, great Disney film. And there is partly personal thing from my point of view. I don't like the way that Dumbo is bullied by the mother elephants. I find that really traumatic. I don't like clowns particularly. And I can (laughs) really do without the racist crows. So I just thought, you know what, it may be beautifully made, it is a great film, but actually, in this scheme of things, I've only got so many to choose from, I'm losing Dumbo. So that was controversial, but it's been made and it's too late to change it. And yet, you've got some absolutely extraordinary choices in there as well, which I'm just bowled over by. I can't imagine ever expecting to find, unless it was being programmed by myself, Dick Tracy and The Black Hole on a programme for a Disney retrospective season, but I adore those films and they're such big parts of the Disney yeah, story. I am so pleased you said that, because those two of the films that I was absolutely determined I was going to play, and I was also determined they were going to be in NFT1, our biggest cinema, and that we would get an audience for them, which I still obviously, we don't know the answer to that one yet. But I really feel Dick Tracy is a film that a lot of people haven't seen at all. And certainly a lot of people will never have seen on the big screen. And certainly they won't have seen it on 35mm either. So when we were talking about the scheduling of the season, there was definitely a feeling that that was probably a film that might be one of the smaller cinemas. But I feel really strongly that that is one of our rediscovery films. And I think that beautiful matte backgrounds, the colourful clothes, the comic strip recreation, but also just Warren Beatty, Al Pacino, Madonna, that music. I mean, all everything about that film is so ripe for rediscovery, I think. 
I mean, if I am available, I am going to be there at both of those screenings with a bullet because, yeah, the, the opportunity to see something like that in the big cinema is one you cannot miss. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Black Hole, you know, I mean, that's a film I remember so fondly. We talk about childhood memories. That's a real nostalgia film for me. I remember it really, really clearly as a child. It was just after that sort of big Star Wars storm. It was between, I think, Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back, probably around that kind of period. And I never felt it had as much love as it, as it deserved. It's definitely one that I love and have returned to. And it's one of those films where it's got an incredible cast. It's got some great shocks and surprises in there. It's got bits that don't work as well. But that's fine. You know, it's, it's a flawed film in some respects, but it's a great film, I think. So what was your criteria overall then for choosing the films you've chosen? Because looking over the calendar that you have, you have, as you guys have spoken about, some live action movies. You have various classic animated princess movies. You have some more contemporary animated Disney films. You have a little bit of Pixar in there as well. How did you approach curating the season? What was it for you that made you decide, okay, this this goes in. This is a, an important part of the story. I mean, it wasn't an exact science. You do have to use your own instinct a lot of the time. I did have to think about what would bring audiences in. I had to think about the audiences. And I know that some of the more recent films would probably struggle because maybe it's just not the right time to reopen them again because they've either been widely seen or just been released on Disney+. Plus. But having said that, I knew that I wanted to do a short film with every film, regardless of whether it was live action or animation. So that was quite fun, trying to pair up films with whatever the feature was. I knew that one of the old ways that the BFI used to do a lot of its programming was you would just have an auteur or whatever, and you'd just program them chronologically, and you'd have films. So, so the old way would have been you'd have Snow White and Canto as being you know, the final film in, in the end of August, and we'd kind of do some sort of chronological journey. But I didn't really want to do that. I wanted to sort of try and put it into different sort of subheadings and make it a bit more accessible, because I know that not everybody's going to come to everything. I wanted to split into different sort of categories, and the way I did that was having a sort of you know, technological section, so it's Black Hole, Tron, Toy Story, you know, so films where the company as a whole have really pushed the envelope in terms of technology. Obviously, they've been doing that since Square One, right back with Snow White. In fact, you know, um, everything that they've done has been about pushing and evolving the art form. But I wanted to do something around that. I wanted to do something about the fairy stories, something about the films that have been adaptations from successful novels or stories. Couldn't really ignore the fact that obviously there is the sort of talking animal in inverted commas, anthropomorphic aspect of a lot of Disney's films. So I tried to just, just break up the story of Disney into different categories like that. And that kind of helped in a way of delivering it over two months and making it a bit more manageable rather than just a big, here's 50 films, do what you will with them. But it was a very enjoyable experience. You know, if, if you're somebody who likes doing lists and, um, you know, you have that kind of slightly sort of geeky side to you, there's something very enjoyable about going through and agonising about which ones to lose and keep and having that little internal dialogue going on. So just before we let you go, what is the thing that you're personally most excited to see back on the big screen in this season? What's the one film that will catch you down? Maybe not on the front row. Front row is not always the best seat in the house, but which one are you picking the best seat right in the middle of the auditorium to see it big and loud? So I would have been going for Dick Tracy, to be honest. Of course. But I think putting Dick Tracy to one side, I'm really excited about the fact we're going to have the opportunity to show the three Pixar films that have not been seen on the big screen in the UK. Yes. Actually, having the opportunity to play Soul and Luca and Turning Red, which have not been available to cinemas in the UK, is really exciting to me. I programmed Soul for the London Film Festival, and I saw it on a link. And we did show it, actually, in NFT1 for a very, very small group of people who managed to get tickets in a socially distanced way. But it's not been seen apart from that. So I've not seen any of those three films on the big screen. 
I think Luca actually I'm most looking forward to perhaps maybe Luca is the one that I'm really looking forward to sitting down in with an audience and watching on a big screen yeah I love you for doing that Justin I'm so happy that you're bringing those films to the big screen because uh, we could go on a whole sidetrack about this but I think this recent era of Pixar they have been pushing the visual envelope of the Pixar style really significantly in those last few features especially in Luca and Turning Red I cannot wait to see those films on the big screen I'll be right there with you and yeah have a look online everybody the bfi season making magic 100 years of disney begins this week and it's running through the summer so have a look at the listings see what's coming up and yes you can come and see sam and myself at the once upon a time a disney day on saturday the 22nd of july we would love to see you down there justin thank you so much for your time today lovely to have you on the show thanks very much And that is it for this special study group episode. As we said, this isn't planned to be as long a break as last time, and we may have a few bonus episodes in the works too, so it won't be too long until we're back on your pod feeds and heading out into the wilderness, into the great beyond. For now, though, it's goodbye from Sam. Goodbye. I'm off to battle Ganondorf. If you're listening, Ganondorf, watch your back, mate. Sleep with one eye open. And it's goodbye from me. I'm going to find out if there's any way we can still refer to this as the Oddbod era. Oddbods everywhere. Unite! Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class. (laughs) 